Hi, everyone, and welcome to How to College for First Gens, where we have real conversations about what it's like to be a first-generation student before, during, and after college. For those of you new to the podcast, our goal here is to democratize knowledge that we've gained along the way, learn a bit more about the first-gen experience, and hopefully help others going through some of the challenges we've experienced by sharing lessons learned from fellow first-gens. I am Luz, one of the podcast co-hosts and a first-generation student myself. Today, we are introducing you to our second newly appointed board member. The board helps guide us in providing you, our listeners, the best and most effective content to reach our mission. We are happy to have them on board and are excited for you to get to know them a little better too. On today's episode, I am happy to introduce you to Erica. Erica is a phenomenal human being with an interesting story. From figuring out the value of her identity to being unemployed after two degrees and appreciating the act of self-love, she is resilient and has found her passion for helping others to do their best through leadership development. So join me on this journey to learn more. Erica, welcome to the podcast and thanks for being here with us today. Why don't you start with a quick intro for our audience? Hi, my name is Erica or you can call me Erica, either works. I am uh, 34 years old and calling in today from Salt Lake City, Utah. I was born and raised in Utah and spent some time going to the University of San Francisco, graduated from there, and then also went on and got my Master of Divinity degree from Harvard Divinity School. And I'm just so happy to be here and to support this project. Cool. So you went to school like opposite sides of the country. Yes, (laughs) I have. I've spanned the country in some ways. You know, the million dollar question is always, which coast is better? What do you think? Oh, my goodness. You know, Boston is a very particular place. And I love the West Coast and San Francisco and the Bay Area. But I got to say, I'm like a hometown girl at heart. And having just moved back to my home state of Utah, I think Utah is the best state in the country. So diving a little bit more about your story. So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? What was it like for you growing up? And what do you think makes up your identity? I grew up in a, in a small town in Utah called Liberty. It's about 40, 40 minutes from the next big town, which is not saying a lot, in, in northern Utah. And I identify as Latina, but um, half Mexican and half white, and also identify as queer. So I feel like it was a hard experience growing up navigating my Latinidad and my queerness in a state that was predominantly white. And at the time, predominantly very, very conservative, especially towards LGBTQ communities. So I grew up, uh, just to say it really honestly, with a profound sense of loneliness and disconnection. But what was the antidote to that loneliness and that disconnection was the love of my family. My abuela, my tias, my tios, my mom, my dad. I was also very blessed to have a stepdad as a guide and as a mentor to me. So I think those early experiences really shaped me and really helped me to develop a sense of empathy for those who feel like they don't belong. Yeah, and I think a lot of first-gen students feel a lot of that loneliness for for different reasons. So definitely understand where you're coming from there. And I'm glad you had your family to fall back on because a lot of times that's that's what a lot of people do. And it helps so much to have them close by. Yep, everybody was in Utah. Some other point I'd love to talk about, you know, my family's migration from Mexico up to Chicago and then Chicago to Utah. 
And, you know, my mom's story is being the first Latina to work in her entire workplace. And so it was nice to have them close by spending afternoons and summers at my abuela's house, eating all the flour tortillas that I could and (laughs) all the fideo and sopa that I could and just really appreciated the background of their nourishment in so many ways as I was grappling with what it meant to be queer, what it meant to be Latina, and what it meant, honestly, to have dreams that were beyond even what my family could have imagined for myself. Absolutely. And I think it's it's great having that family to support you, especially when you're thinking about like, oh, like, should I do this college thing? Because a, a lot of times families don't understand, like, why are you going and getting a college degree? So what was it like for you specifically, like deciding, oh, I'm going to go to college and... How did you make that happen? I was really lucky in the sense that my mom really pushed me going to college and my brother as well. I got to give him a shout out. He is a graduate of the United States Naval Academy. And so my mom really pushed the value of education for us. But I think where we really differed was, you know, I was this queer Latina in Utah trying to survive. And at the time I wasn't out to her. And I just knew that I needed to physically get out of Utah in order to survive. And at that time, I told my mom, I I just want to go out of state. And she's like, I won't support you doing that. And so I explored a number of different options, ROTC among them, student loans, others, just to try to get out of my home state because I felt like I I was suffocating. Yeah, I think that's a really common one, the staying close to home. It's great that you're going to go to college. Like, we we love that. But like, can you stay close to home? Because we're not ready to let go. So (laughs) I'm sure that was like a difficult conversation to have. It was. And, you know, it's so funny. Once my mom saw how determined I was to to leave Utah, she was like, okay, I'm going to do everything I can to support you. It's funny, though, because like when I first told her, hey, mom, I want to go to the University of San Francisco. And she was very suspicious about me going out of state. And she's like, how do I know you're not going to run away with some man? I was like, oh, mom, there's some things you don't know about me yet, but you don't have to worry about that one. (laughs) Oh, that is so funny. (laughs) So on your journey to college, besides getting some of that support initially and, and paying it off, what were some of these other challenges that you faced along the way as you got to college and then just getting through college? I think I faced a lot of cultural challenges in the sense of having grown up in such a homogenous place like Utah, learning new things, new foods, new new ways of, of dressing. I learned that people paid $100 for jeans. And so I was like, wait, I'm just buying my jeans at American Eagle, you know? So beginning to understand some of these different ways that people were navigating culture and class, learning different types of food. Like I had no idea what hummus was or arugula, you know? And so I think those, those were some, some challenges that I really faced. And then the second was just finding a sense of community on campus. And I'm really grateful because at the University of San Francisco, they had a welcome program for Latino students called Bienvenidos. And it was that program that I met my friends, my roommates. And it was also through that program that I got very involved in Mecha, um, which is a a Latino student organization uh, nationwide. And that really helped me to find a sense of community and helped me tap into really becoming an activist and mobilizing that desire I always had to make change, but giving me an outlet for it. 
I think it's really funny that you mentioned the stuff about like the hummus because I think uh, a, lo- a lot of people don't realize how much social capital comes into like this whole experience because I-, I think when I was in college, that was also probably the first time I heard about hummus too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe everybody knows about hummus, maybe not. I'm glad I learned. Yeah, you just get exposed to so many things like the different classes like how different people approach things and it's it's really interesting college is just such a unique experience and I absolutely agree about you with the community I think that really helps make the experience because if you don't have that sense of community from early on it makes it super difficult to get rid of that sense of loneliness for example so I'm really glad that you had that too because I don't know if I, I would have been able to have as good a, an experience had I not had that community from the get-go. Yes. One thing I'd really encourage all first-generation college students to do is to seek out a community, no matter what it is, whether it's rooted in identity, interests. Everyone seems like they got it all figured out, but everyone's still trying to figure it out. And we're all trying to make friends. And I feel like even as adults trying to make friends, you know, so it's okay to put yourself out there, show up to that student meeting, and it's going to take some time to stick. But there's an opportunity for relationships to really be built and formed over the course of your time at school. So along this journey, did you have any help besides your community of support? I was very lucky in that I had a couple professors who really took me under their wings and helped to provide me with additional resources, said, hey, I think that you would be really good for this program. You should apply for it. And they encouraged me to apply for a program that's uh, now defunded, but it was called the Institute for International Public Policy. And my professor, Professor Wibben, said, you should apply for this and wrote my letters of recommendation. and, and And I got in and that sent me over my college summers to Spelman College for a policy institute. And then the following year, I went to University of Maryland College Park for another policy institute. It helped fund my study abroad experience to Bilbao, Spain, which is Basque country up in, in northern Spain. And so I'm just so grateful that I had people who helped to shepherd my growth and my development and really made opportunities available to me and said, hey, I think you should apply for this, even if I felt like I wasn't qualified at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's super important to have some of those resources, some of those mentors, and and even just like reaching out to professors and seeing what opportunities there are. Because I feel like as a first gen, I just never quite knew like what all was out there because I just wasn't exposed to it. So it's really important to ask those questions and get exposed to as much as you can. So that's really cool that you got to, you know, visit these other colleges and study abroad. Yeah. And for any first gens listening out there, just wanting to name a few programs that they should look up and check out, whether it's a Fulbright, whether it's the Gilman Scholarship, whether it's a Truman Scholarship, there are so many opportunities that you can apply for and seek out to help fund some of your interests and introduce you to more people in a broader network. So moving beyond college a little bit, I know you ended up going to Harvard for graduate school. How did that decision come about? I mean, I feel like a lot of students are like, oh my gosh, like college is is hard enough already, but adding on a couple more years on top of that, what were you thinking? I know, good question. So after college, I did this uh, program called the Coro Fellows Program in Public Affairs, and it is for people who are aspiring leaders or want to make a difference in the world of public affairs. And 
through that program, I realized that there's this whole field called leadership development. And it put me down a path of like, how do we develop and grow ourselves and others as leaders who are prepared to make a difference in their communities, no matter where they are? And so I was working at this organization after I completed this fellowship called Rockwood Leadership Institute. And I was beginning to see in the organization and in the people around me that there was a thread of spirituality that motivated their work. And that was percolating in my mind. And then also at the same time, I, and it sounds crazy, but it's 100% true. I had a dream and in the dream, I kid you not, the words divinity school came to me. And I know it sounds like crazy, (laughs) but I, I promise you that it's true. And I woke up and I was, and I was like, what the hell is divinity school? Because For so long, I was thinking policy school, but I didn't feel a fire in my belly around it. It was like just a thing that I should do. And I looked into divinity school and I was like, I have a fire in me around this. And all the social change leaders I admired and loved had a bedrock of spirituality that supported the change that they wanted to make in the world. And so applied to Harvard Divinity School. It was the only school I applied to. I said, Harvard or bust. I'm a firm believer in listening to your intuition and really listening to that deep gut feeling you have about what is next for you in the world. And so I went for it and went to Harvard Divinity School for a Master of Divinity degree. And that was a three-year degree there. I'll be honest. I don't know a whole lot about Divinity School and what that means. Nobody does. It's okay, girl. It's okay. Everyone's like, what is that degree? Are you a high priestess? Like, what what are you? (laughs) Yeah. So for me and all of our listeners out there that are like thinking, what is this Divinity School? Can you break it down for us a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I'm going to be name dropping a bunch of programs in here. So another program that I would love to name drop that I did is called Diversity and Explorations at Harvard Divinity School that takes students from underserved or underrepresented backgrounds for a two-day fully paid experience to Harvard to introduce them to the campus and to the life. And I did that program and that's a great intro. What I would say is Divinity School is traditionally it's been people who are entering into formal positions of ministry go on to get their master of divinity degree, whether that's a, a, a rabbi, a priest of some kind, a minister, that's kind of the training that they do. I really see my ministry as this leadership development work, creating the conditions for people to have a sense of meaning and belonging and connection in the work that they do in their everyday lives. So I got a master of divinity with a focus on Buddhism, which is really an emphasis on meditation and mindfulness. And so took that course and it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I like to joke that I don't feel like bad people really go to divinity school. And when I applied, I was like, I'm probably going to be one of the only queer people there. No, divinity school is like probably the queerest school, graduate school you can go to because, which is surprising. I think in part because once you come to terms with your identity, uh, whether it's sexuality or gender, all of a sudden everything else can come into question. What are my beliefs about who I am and why am I in the world? That's really interesting. So going off of that a little bit and just figuring out like your place in the world, how did you navigate your postgraduate life and settling into your career and figuring all of that out? Because it's one thing to go into college and and just struggle figuring that out. But then you get into this like real world thing and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, what did I get myself into? 
Yeah. Well, what I would say is that you never quite have it all figured out. You know, I had a mentor who said you do everything for a season and a reason. And so thinking in in smaller chunks helps to make it much more manageable for me. But I graduated uh, from Divinity School and I applied for a job that I I, I thought that I was going to get. Like I put all my eggs in, in one basket again. And all signs were looking like I was going to get this job and then I didn't get the job. And all of a sudden I was unemployed for about three months, living off my credit cards, trying to, to, to get by. And I mentioned the story because many people have experiences of hardship and, you know, it's not just about all the polish, like, Hey, this was, this happened, but it was, it was a really hard time. And I think one thing I reflected on that was how much of our identity is tied up to into what we do rather than who we are. And I remember at that time I went to go get my hair cut at the barber shop and the man who was cutting my hair asked me, what do you do? And this was at the time that I was unemployed. And I said, well, I'm a student. I didn't have the courage to tell him that I was unemployed because I had my whole life had all these boxes lined up and I checked every single box And at that time, I had a lot of shame about what I was experiencing, especially when I saw my peers had a much smoother path. And so that was a difficult experience, but it was one that gave me a lot of empathy for when you have those moments in your life when things don't line up the way that you wanted them to. And it was also a humbling experience as well. And so after that period of time, I found found a job working actually at the Harvard Kennedy School, running leadership development and training programs, working with students. And it was there that I really felt like I flourished in my role of supporting students and helping them to grow and also in stepping into my full identity as a, as a young professional. Yeah, I think one thing I'd like to mention is that, yeah, you when you do go to college, you expect that like, oh, this college degree is going to open up a job and I won't have to worry about those things. But often that's, that's not quite the case. Sometimes you do have to struggle and like find that opportunity. A college degree doesn't, you know, 100% guarantee that you'll flourish and be successful and, you know, whatnot. But I think a lot of students maybe come in with that idea in mind. And then when that doesn't happen, it just like throws you off balance quite a bit. Exactly, exactly. And I think, especially after my graduate school experience, what I realized was that the college and graduate school are really just keys. They're access keys. There's a lot of learning and growth and development that happens, but they're access keys. And once you go through that gateway, you you do have access, but there's all these other types of access that helps to support that. Like you mentioned, social capital, the relationships and the people around you, the networking that helps you to unlock the next step for yourself. Definitely. So how exactly did you get into doing this leadership development work? And what exactly about it like really excites you? I mean, a, a couple things like one is like there are so many issues I care about. That from, you know, immigration to homelessness to affordable housing to something as nerdy as public finance, how do we fund the things that we want to create in our cities and in our communities? And I realized that I can't work on all of those issues, nor am I the best person to do that. But what I can do is support the people who who are doing that work. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and I really deeply feel this, is that You know, my mom, I mentioned earlier, was the first Latina in her entire building to work there. And she was a traffic court clerk. 
So when you got your traffic ticket, you would go to the court and you would pay that traffic ticket. And it was a good job with benefits. And my mom had a, you know, a high school degree, not a lot of room for advancement. And she woke up every day for 30 years and for the most part hated going to work. And I think many people have that experience of not finding a sense of meaning or purpose in the work that they do. And I saw the effect that that had on her mind and on her body. And I really feel like leadership development and the work that I do helps to facilitate processes where people can drop in to find and tap into their sense of purpose and find meaning in the work that they do, no matter what sector, industry, or place of employment that they may have. So that's really what motivates me is we spend so much of our lives at work and really wanting to create an opportunity for that sense of connection to why am I here on this planet? I want to have a sense of meaning to the things that I do. Yeah, that's always the the big question. Like, I think a lot of times when you graduate, if you like come from like a background where, you know, it was always kind of a struggle, you get this college degree, then you think you have to get this job, like really high paying job. And if it's making you miserable, where do you draw the line of letting it go and like, doing it for your own well-being. So that one's always like a really tough one, especially if you feel pressure to to help back at home and stuff. Exactly. And I'm really glad that you mentioned that, Luce, because in one of the questions that you shared with me was like, what's what's been your greatest accomplishment? I had that narrative too. I was like, I want to go to school. I want to help my family. I want to help them financially. You know, I want to buy nice things for my abuela, help pay her property taxes when the bill comes, you know? But about four years ago, I had the opportunity to help my family in the best possible way I ever could. And that was with my Tia Mari. So my Tia Mari was in the delivery room when I was born. And uh, about five years ago or so, she uh, was placed on dialysis for kidney failure. And so I went through the process to see if I could be a match of a kidney donor match for her. And I was, and I donated my kidney successfully to my Tia Mari, my aunt, and she's still flourishing and I'm still flourishing and we're both doing great. And I think it was this moment for me where it's like, I had always thought that my family needed me financially, but in some ways they needed me in a much deeper way to give back. And it wasn't even giving back. It was like, it already belonged to them, right? Like our families put so much into us and it's not about giving back. It's just like, it's an exchange that happens. And it was just a really good reflection moment for me of like how I thought I was going to help them and then how I actually did. Yeah, I love that. And just, yeah, taking a step back and seeing how there's so many different ways to give back and to provide support for the longest time. That's that's how I felt too. Like I'm going to get this degree, get a job, so that I can pay them back. Yes, exactly. And there are so many ways. And I and I think, and not to speak for all families everywhere, but I think maybe families want to, they just want their their kids and their the people in, around them to be happy. Sometimes they struggle to understand that happiness, but they just want to know that you're okay and that you can take care of yourself and that you love them and care for them too. So the money helps and the financial security helps, but I think there's always a deeper current there that, is helpful for me to remember. So, you know, giving back. So you've joined our board at How to College First Gen, and we're super excited to have you on board. So what do you hope to accomplish with the board and just like being part of it in terms of giving back? Yeah, I think 
a desire to be of service to others and a particular love for my Latino, Latine, Latina, Latinx community, you know, however we want to define ourselves and really unlocking the power of my community and creating pathways for that to happen. And I believe college is one of those pathways. And so that's what really inspires and motivates me. And I just want to see no matter who you are, but especially just in my terms of my identity, I want to see Latinos fully harnessing and capturing the power that is inside of them. And college is one of those ways. I absolutely love that. So what do you think we still have a lot of work to go in terms of, you know, as a nation in education or, or racial economic disparities or just things in general? I, and this is my divinity school answer, so bear with me. I think we all have a lot of work to do in terms of understanding and knowing and loving ourselves as human beings. And what that means is to take the opportunity to look at ourselves and to see the really beautiful qualities that each one of us has inside of us and to honor and to nourish those qualities. And to, you know, we notice sometimes we have some of the weeds inside of us or things that maybe aren't so beautiful. And and that's what we see out in the world oftentimes is that ugliness. And yet there's still so much beauty inside of us. And I think each person really needs to do that process of self-reflection of who am I? What are the unique gifts that I have to offer? How can I fully live into the reason why I'm here? And I think all of us are searching for that reason why I'm here. But I really believe that process of self-awareness and self-reflection will help us to make more progress on the on the pressing public issues that we're all facing. Yeah, I think that is super well put. And to finish off here, so what do you think would be some advice that you could offer to first-generation students about going to college or just like life in general and figuring things out? This is a very deeply personal thing that I'll share. And even as I say it out loud, it makes me tear up. But my mom passed away about three years ago from breast cancer. And my mom struggled with the way she looked and her identity her whole life. She felt like she wasn't smart enough. Her nose was too wide and all these things. She she suffered from a lack of self-love. And my mom was, towards the end of her life, fully paralyzed from the neck down. And I was sitting next to her bedside one day, and she asked me to bring her a mirror. And I was like, okay. I brought her a mirror, and I held up the mirror for her. And she looked into the mirror, and she said, it is so important that in this life, we learn how to love ourselves. And in that moment, I realized, like, it is so important that I do the self-work of self-love. And so that's like what I would offer to any first-gen college students, like to engage in that process of self-love and that self-affirmation. And it's an ongoing process, but in some ways, don't go your whole life wondering if you're good enough or not, because you are, you're good enough, period. Absolutely. I'm so sorry to hear about your mom, but I definitely, yeah, agree that it's so easy to forget about that. Especially, I feel like this day and age where people get so trapped in this social media and and comparing themselves to others. So I I think that's super, super important. I'm really glad that you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's and that's an ongoing journey. And just I think I believe ever since that moment, my way to honor my mom's legacy is by continually doing that work of self-love and encouraging others to be on that path too. always taking a step back, reflecting about where you are, how you're doing definitely super important. Exactly. 
Well, thank you so much, Erica, for joining us today on the podcast and sharing a little bit about your story. It's been super lovely to have you. Thank you so much, Luz. You take care. Our board of directors is made up of amazing individuals with their own interesting life and college journeys that we can all also learn from. In today's episode, Erica made sure to remind us about the importance of self-love and awareness, allowing yourself to be open to new opportunities, and leaning in on others for help along the way. Although early on in her journey, she felt a sense of loneliness as she began to find her place in this world. She learned that even through some of life's rocky and difficult patches, we learn about ourselves and can come back even stronger. In leadership development, she has found a way to give back to her communities by helping to empower others in their own journeys. For more information about our board or to subscribe to our newsletter, check out our website at howtocollegefirstgen.org. If you prefer to reach us on social media to share with us your experience as a first gen, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Remember, you are not alone on this journey. Until next time.